This is the case of Marion Barter, a mother, teacher, friend, missing for 23 years. You know, no sign that she was going to vanish, that's for sure. The bizarre circumstances surrounding her disappearance. I'm not sure if it was intentional or if there's something more foul afoot. If you could imagine a teacher coming straight from, say, Little House on the Prairie to the 80s, that was Marion Barter. Whether you find Marion Barter dead or alive, I honestly believe somebody has that key piece of information. And the relentless quest of a daughter to find her mum. Something had happened. Something has happened to make her leave. I am 100% sure, 100% sure that somebody knows something. The Lady Vanishes, episode 19. I'm Alison Sandy. And I'm Brian Seymour. It's happening. More than 23 years since she hopped on a plane for the trip of a lifetime and vanished. More than half a lifetime since daughter Sally last heard her mother's voice on the phone. We are pleased and relieved to announce that a coronial inquiry slash inquest will be held into the 1997 disappearance of Marion Barter. On August 6, 2020, the New South Wales Crown Solicitor's Office sent the following email to Sally Layden. Dear Miss Layden, Inquest into the disappearance of Marion Barter, also known as Florabella Remackle. I am writing to advise you that the State Coroner has confirmed that an inquest into the disappearance of your mother Marion will be held and that the State Coroner will preside over the hearing. At this stage, I anticipate that the hearing will take place in the second half of 2021. However, no formal listing arrangements have yet been made. I also confirm that this information may be made public. As you are aware, the police brief of evidence is due for service on 30 September 2020. Once that material has been reviewed by my office and counsel assisting, a coronial brief of evidence will be prepared and an instructions from the state coroner provided to the interested parties. This will allow for a thorough review of the material provided by the police and will allow counsel assisting to identify any further material that may need to be sought. I understand that you would like a copy of the brief of evidence as soon as possible, and every effort will be made to make this available to you at the earliest opportunity. Please do not hesitate to contact Sarah Nijar if you have any queries in relation to this matter. Yours faithfully, Sarah Nijar, Solicitor for Crown Solicitor. So, sometime in the second half of next year, we should be heading to the coroner's court in New South Wales. Just days before Sally received that letter, on August 3rd, I checked in with the court media unit to see whether an inquest was coming. Three days later, on August 6th, I received the following email. Hi Brian, the media team has followed this up and is awaiting response from the coroner's court. They'll be in touch with you as soon as they have an answer. Angus. Then, four days after that, on the 10th of August, I got this. Hi Brian, for your background, the state coroner has confirmed that an inquest will be held into the disappearance and suspected death of Florabella Ramical, aka Marion Barter, on a date to be fixed. According to the website of the New South Wales Coroner, 
Approximately 6,000 deaths are investigated by the state's coroners each year. Last year, 93 inquests were completed, with findings released. The job of the coroner is to determine the identity of a deceased person and the date, place and circumstances of that person's death, with the help of investigations by police or medical specialists. It's not an easy task to piece together the information. It is complex and time-consuming. It can take many months. And when there's no witness to a death and no body, as in Marion's case, there is no guarantee a coroner will be able to pinpoint exactly what happened and when. Regardless, though, for Sally, the announcement of an inquest is validation for never giving up on her mum. I've been told a few times and we've spoken about that a few times that it is going to inquest but for me in my heart I wasn't satisfied until I got it in writing that the coroner was going to take it to inquest. It is also bittersweet. I feel like it's a double-edged sword. It's I, I don't know anybody that I've met who's happy or excited about going to inquest into the death of their loved one um, or potential murder. However, knowing an inquest is now definite does strengthen her resolve. This is my chance that someone is actually recognising that my mum is actually missing. And when you've been dealing with what I've been dealing with, I've had mum's family who have told me relentlessly that she's not missing and just leave it alone and let it lie and, you know, she wanted to start her own life. Um, I've had the police and the detectives tell me she changed her name, she wanted to go missing, you know, she's missing on her own account yet no one can find her and no one can verify any of their claims. You know, only three years ago I was pretty much knocking my head against the wall thinking this is ridiculous, I actually don't know what to do Um, because no one was taking me seriously and no one was listening to me when I was saying that she's a missing person. I was was just getting doors shut in my face constantly and everyone was putting it in the too hard basket. She's hoping this will bring the answers she's been seeking for so long, not just for herself, but a family. I feel if we go to a coronial inquest and they do everything in their power to try and find the answers and they still can't do that, I can rest myself and go, I've done everything I possibly could have done to find her. I've been waiting for a long time for it to happen, so I guess I won't know until it actually happens, but I feel like I've been able to document everything exceptionally well. Um, if I may say, um, and we doing the podcast together has been an excellent way of me documenting the story perfectly the way it should be done so that when we go to inquest, everything is outlined. And for me, that was really important, not only for an inquest, but my, my family, for our history of our family, um, for my kids' kids and their children. Most people who have been following my story will know my brother is no longer with us and um, he was my only sibling, but um, I know he'd be really proud of what I've achieved and he knows me well and he knows that I'm someone who once I, I want to fight for something, I fight long and I fight hard and making sure that everyone gets a fair hearing and vice versa for everybody, not just myself. I also was thinking about my grandfather because my mum's mum's dad, he was pretty much the only one that was really fighting with me. And unfortunately for him, he died thinking that mum had left on her own account based on what he'd been told, which we've now since found out that none of that has been verified either. You know, I've always made it my 
my plight that I wasn't going to let this rule my life. I, you know, it's important that you get on with life and you do it the best way you can and you, you know, be a good parent and good mother. I'm not going to be helpful to anybody if I'm in the corner rocking backwards and forwards crying all the time. So I just have to be brave and I have to be strong and have to get on with what I'm doing and juggle all the balls that are thrown at me. I've promised Chris, I've promised the kids that I would not let this rule my life for the rest of my life. I'm 47. I've been doing it since I was 24. I've had enough. Like I'm really tired. I'm exhausted. Um, I would like to be able to celebrate mum's life with her friends and her family who'd like to come. Um, I was planning on doing it this year for her 75th birthday, but with coronavirus and everything else going on, that wasn't going to seem possible. So we called it a couple of months ago. Um, so we will look at doing it next year and next year will mark the 25th year of mum being missing. Um, so unless a miracle happens and we find her in that time, um, I would like to look at celebrating, um, her life then. And for me, that would be some way of having my closure. News of the inquest is also being celebrated by those who've supported Sally along the way. The 20-year-old was last seen leaving Ark nightclub. People like Faye and Mark Levison, whose son Matt disappeared from a Sydney nightclub in September 2007. We've conducted uh, three extensive searches. Almost 10 years later, the man accused and acquitted of killing him, Michael Atkins, did a deal for immunity and led police to the spot where he had buried Matt. All thanks to an inquest and the unrelenting persistence of the Leveson family. They really have been driving us, and uh, it's a testimony to uh, love that the family had for him and how hard they fought to... Uh, Mark Leveson. Alison called Mark to share Sally's news. I wanted to let you know that um, we finally have the inquest. I can't express my delight how happy and pleased I am for Sally and the family that they've, they've achieved that. It's been a tremendous acknowledgement of all the work that they've put in. And what it will mean now, that the inquest, unlike a, a court trial, the inquest um, is inquisitorial and not adversarial like a trial. And the big distinction is that the inquest is a fact-finding exercise. The coroner um, is now tasked with finding if there was a death, um, the manner and cause of death, and important as well is that the uh, in New South Wales, the Evidence Act doesn't apply, which means that um, unlike in the criminal trial, I'll use that as an example, um, you know, we lost a good quarter of the time with the defence arguing what evidence would be permitted to be heard by the jury and what wouldn't. And that wastes so much time. So at least now with no Evidence Act, it's open slatter. Everything is in. And... As we, you know, you know, we've been battling with um, FOI for so long, and um, I think I recall you saying uh, last time we caught up that FOI redactions. I mean, we may never have to worry about another redacted document in relation to this again. Yeah, the the um, personal access counsel for the family, uh, the family or somebody else. Uh, will now be privy to the evidence that's held by the authorities. Um, and to be fair, they must be supplied with all that the authorities have. And I mean all. In, in our situation, I was a counsel for our family, and um, the evidence and, and, and documents and interviews that were, that were, were withheld from us for so many years um, feeble excuses from uh, 
uh, from Githa, um, were just null and void. We were given every single thing and even more that I asked for. The full police brief of evidence in the Marion Barter case is due to be handed to the coroner in a matter of weeks. And Sally should also be getting a copy. Um, We know that the brief of evidence is being handed down um, on the 30th of September this year. And I will be informed of that when that happens. And I know that um, that will be given to the coroner. They've told me with no pushbacks and no, no further setbacks Um, But that gives the Crown solicitors who are working for the coroner able to have a look at the brief, check out all the information, see if there's anything else that they feel needs to be investigated further before we actually take it to the inquest. I need to be able to look at that and ensure that everything that I have suggested is checked and everything that I've put forward and offered as an assistant to um, them finding out information has been looked into and um, they are doing that properly because... There's no point in me giving all the information if they're not doing anything with it. I hope that that's what's happening. But um, obviously seeing the brief of evidence will give me some sort of guide pole as to what they've done and what they haven't done, and then we can move forward from there. And it's good to, that I can sit at the coronial inquest and know that if I have a question to ask or if I want to make a statement, I can do that and I can have a voice. I have actually been in touch with Stephanie Dartnell, who works for the Family and Friends of Missing Persons, and she has actually done as part of her thesis, I believe, um, at uni, um, a document on what to expect when you go to a coronial inquest. So Trish Halligan was telling me about that from the AFP while I was down there and um, I've contacted Steph, who's gorgeous as well and really, really beautiful girl. So she's actually sending me a copy uh, in the mail so that I can actually just sit down and go through it. What is it? How do we? How does it work? What What's going to be the daily um, scenario being at an inquest? Because obviously I've never been to one before, so I have no clue what that means or how, how to go about it. But um, it's very comforting to know that I do have... Uh, a legal team behind me to support me there. So that will take a little bit of pressure off me because up to date, it's pretty much been me, 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 you and Brian, (laughs) (laughs) me (laughs) doing it. So, um, you know, it will be good to have that extra support. Sally's also been reaching out to the Levisons to find out what else she can expect. Yeah, look, I have I have been in touch with um, Faye and Mark a little bit um, just because obviously they've been through an inquest and um, obviously he's been to my home and he's a lovely, lovely man and very supportive and very knowledgeable. One thing I, I passed on to Sally a little while ago, I think that she should when she gets the chance, attend an inquest down here in New South Wales just for a day or two, even if she knows who her coroner may be, go to one of that coroner's other inquests and just sit in, see what goes on, what it's like, what the courtroom lad is and where people sit, what gets asked. And it's, it's just a bit of a heads up before she goes in cold to her own, uh, her mum's own one. So it's, uh, uh, it was an eye opener, but um, um, again, we started from basically zero base and thought any we can achieve or something. Do you remember when you found out that the inquest was going to happen and how you felt? Relief was we tried so many times and our um, head detective, uh, Gary Jubilant, um, said this is the path we should be going down. We said, look, we see no other choices. So, uh, of course, let's try that one. And uh, he thought that we, we had a good chance of getting inquested and it was granted. And uh, it was such a relief to... Um, 
to have that and you just think it first, oh God, now what now? Which which way do we go now? So you you just go with the flow and, and uh, you just do what you can. Another question. Um, you would have got been privy to the documents prior to the inquest, but I, I'd understand that would all be confidential until the inquest. Is that kind of how it works? Strangely enough, no. Um, we didn't get everything before the inquest. We got some things, but not a lot. And as the inquest progressed after that, there would have been no more than a day or two, uh, I made a formal complaint to our coroner. I just said, look, Your Honour, you've granted me leave to represent the family, but there's things here the other counts have that I don't. And I need to see this to be fair to what we can achieve here. And she said, Mr Leveson, I apologise, it will never happen again. And from that day forward, I think we gained more of her respect and, uh, and the other counts' respect, and uh, we did have every single thing. Were you able to talk about it, though, outside the inquest uh, process? There was some things which we we uh, chose not to, some things we were directed not to. Um, I, guess I can't recall whether it was all under embargo, but uh, it was a bit of a mixture. Now, for memory, yours started then stopped, is that right? Is it Many, many times. It went in total just over two years. Now, I, I try and think back how many sitting days we had there, and, um, I really can't. I mean, we probably had about over 30 days in that two years. And why did it stop and start? Because we had allocated two weeks of court time in the, um, the first tranche of our inquest and uh, uh, the council said to the coroner, look, you're right, and this shouldn't take too long. I think four days should knock it over. That wasn't the case at all. And after two weeks, um, our court allocated court days were, were used up. So we had to reconvene in the following following year. And um, we'd also, at different times, uh, call a halt the inquest uh, because further investigations need to be made from things we'd heard in the inquest. It took the police down different paths to check things. And uh, uh, even near the end, when Michael Atkins uh, admitted to perjuring himself, um, we um, adjourned the inquest again. You do have a conclusion, even if it's an open finding, you knew that something would come out of this? Well, we, no, we didn't actually know if it would come out of it. We were hopeful something would come out of it, but in the end, um, we got Matt back, um, and um, he's now resting peacefully. Um, people are compelled to give evidence. Even Michael Atkins was compelled to talk in the inquest. He appealed to the Supreme Court to uh, not speak at the inquest, and he lost that appeal and was forced to talk under oath and, uh, and even needed to perjuring himself. So, uh, um, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's a very, very powerful tool, um, the inquest, and uh, um, people who have uh, been involved in uh, any other activities, such as criminal activity, uh, can be given concessions by the coroner if they, if they ask, if it's possible, so they can speak freely and uh, not be a few charges for whatever else they may have done. Yeah, because that's one thing that we're not sure about. Like, um, unlike your case, some of our people of interest potentially are overseas. So it will be interesting to see, you know, when there's international laws and how that stands with our laws and whether or not the law here can compel them to appear, maybe even if it's not in person, at least via some sort of um, Zoom or WebEx? I, I don't know how this affects other boundaries, but I, we, in our inquest, we had a person give evidence from the UK, from London, uh, via video link. We had a person give evidence from Queensland via video link. So I don't know. I mean, they gave evidence willingly. You know, whether, whether if ever they were to be, to be forced, I don't know the power of the court for that. 
Well, we've been endeavouring to find out just how much power an Australian court has in foreign countries. In our recent interview, I asked former Deputy State Coroner Hugh Dillon whether in jurisdictions such as Luxembourg, Australian authorities can compel people to attend an inquest or give evidence. This was his response. Uh, Well, you can't, but you can ask for assistance. Um, Under the Mutual Assistance Act, the Commonwealth Attorney-General can ask for help from other jurisdictions to get evidence, uh, and vice versa, of course. Um, So uh, that could be done, I think. So there is some hope on that front. Other good news from overseas, our sleuth Joni has discovered that Marion is now listed as a missing person by Interpol for the very first time. There is a yellow notice for the name Florabella Natalia Marion Remichel and the web listing provides photographs of her as well as details about the date she went missing and her physical appearance, including distinguishing marks such as the brown freckle under the pupil in the iris of her right eye. Another person who's been following and promoting the case is well-known long-time radio presenter Greg Kerry. Hi, Greg. Guess Ali here. How are you? This is how he reacted when we told him about the inquest. Oh, I think it's a huge deal, Ali. A a huge deal. And I think congratulations to you and Brian and uh, Sally for your your perseverance and your your doggedness throughout. Coronial inquiries can be incredibly positive things. They can not only identify suspects, but they can they can put the events that they're examining into some kind of context. And I think very importantly and significantly, they can make recommendations that make the kinds of mistakes less likely to happen in the future that were made this time around. And that's why I think the police should embrace this kind of thing rather than be as resistant as they have been in this case and many other cases as well. And I know many police uh, as friends who, who agree with that. Um, with that point. So I, I think it's going to be very, very positive. I, I know in aviation, when they have disasters, they call it the Swiss cheese theory. They always have investigations. They're always very reluctant to um, ascribe blame. They just want to find out what happened to make sure it doesn't happen again. And the Swiss cheese theory, I think, is a good one in that major mistakes aren't always the main reason things happen. It's little mistakes along the way. Now, you would have noticed that yourself. So you've got a little mistake, gets on top of a little mistake and another mistake and suddenly you've got a major disaster or something that shouldn't have happened if the, if the little things have been paid attention to at the time. So I think, yeah, the coronial inquiry is going to be terrific. I guess the interesting thing is um, this goes overseas so um, with a lot of the witnesses and it will be interesting to see how that plays out because I know with the Mark Levison case, which I know you're familiar with, yeah. um, they had – international witnesses, but they wanted to participate. I think one of the great things you've done in this podcast, Ali, is you've informed us about all kinds of things we didn't know about on the way through, and that includes what happens in other parts of the world. And I think the the inquiry here is going to be able to canvas some of that. So I think Sally is going to get some kind of resolution. Increasingly, you've got to think it's, it's going to be a, a sad one, a tragic one. But you know, her uh, her courage and her love for her mother throughout all of this, I think, has been reflected in the work you've done. And uh, I think it's one of the powers of, of, of the podcasts, yours and several other really good ones around the place. And again, I think the police should be embracing this kind of thing. Because as you know, bureaucracies, and that's where your quest for freedom of information is so important, 
bureaucracies oftentimes have as their priority to to keep information to themselves. Your job as a good, good journalist and Brian's is obviously to, to shine the spotlight on those dusty corners of bureaucracy. So there's always going to be that clash. But in this case, and, and increasingly in other cases around the place, that light has been shone and, and the dust is being wiped away, and that's good. Yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful Michael Conley line for Harry Bosch, isn't it? Everybody counts or nobody counts, and, and Marion counts, and, and Sally counts, and all the others in their position count. And uh, and people have learned more about how to go about getting answers from, from what you've done, so, so well done. Hi, Alison, how are you going? And Rebecca Cotts from the Missing Persons Unit at the Australian Federal Police. Hey, there's one thing I didn't tell you the other day because I wanted to let you know. I am recording now, so I wanted to get your reaction um, without you already knowing, but we have a bit of good news. I don't know um, whether Sal's told you yet, but... Oh, the head's been up on the back of my neck. Tell me you found her. Oh, God! Oh. <laughs> I wish, I wish! Oh, but it's not that good of news, oh, but it is still really good news. Yeah. We are getting an inquest. Oh, well, that's the next best thing. Okay, awesome. New South Wales or Queensland? In New South Wales, yeah. Okay, good. There are so many um, outcomes, well, things that have come out of inquests. There's been further investigations and everything. So it's a very exciting time. And as someone who's been a big supporter right from the very beginning, Beck, um, you know, I'm sure, as you know, that everything will be laid out to bear. Absolutely. And I can tell you now, I've shared the posts as far and wide as I can every time there's been a new um, episode release and things like that and I, I've seen the the um, interest in the podcast and um, the the amount of people that have logged on and, and had a look at and heard it um, grow exponentially. I've had people coming out of the woodwork that have heard me on it that know me from previous lives and uh, it's blown me away at how far it's reached all across the world. So it's great, great. Rebecca was the only one who was instrumental in trying to involve Sally in Missing Persons Week media events back in 2007. I thought the AFP were the kingpins and they ruled the universe of Australia as far as policing goes, but that's actually not the case. So each jurisdiction has their own rules and they do what they want to do and if they want to give the AFP information, they will. If they if they don't, they don't have to. And there's all that sort of thing that goes on behind the scenes, which I wasn't aware of. So, um, you know, it goes all the way back to Rebecca Cotts when I called her in 2007, I think it was January, and I was three months pregnant with my 13-year-old, or now 13-year-old, um, and our friendship started then. And, you know, we've she's since left that division and is no longer a part of that, but, you know, we've remained friends and um, we're in contact often, and so she's been quite instrumental, really, in giving me a backbone to keep going and you know that sort of was my my first real decider to go right we need to take some action and that was mum's 10th anniversary that's why I made the phone call to them to see if I could get some help. Honestly it was probably one of the most interesting phone calls I ever took in the almost 10 years I was the head of missing persons there at the Australian Federal Police but um I was working back one night, which I did quite regularly um, because there just wasn't enough hours in the day to help out enough people that had missing persons. And that sounds, you know, um, like I was doing um, things beyond the call of duty, but it was I couldn't help enough. I really couldn't. 
when I got that phone call, Sally called in on our 1800 number, our free call number, um, at about 7.30 one night, and I don't know that she was actually expecting to get somebody onto the end of the phone. I think she sounded quite exasperated about it, feeling like she was sort of at the end of her energy levels as far as what she was doing with the search for her mum. So we had a report almost immediately. She was really well articulated. She had all of her notes and, and records of who she'd spoken to over the years and, and what information. So she had great information to share with me that I could go on. Um, she yeah, she was really looking for a branch, um, you know, somewhere to reach out to to try and, you know, find another focus or another angle that she could possibly take for somebody to sit up and listen. And I think you know, I was as lucky as she was that day because, um, you know, I was in a position to be able to make some inquiries and talk to some people and, and you know, maybe my fresh approach to it was what gave her sort of a little, not strength, I don't want to sound over the top, but maybe a little bit more interest in, in um, looking into different angles. So we sat on the phone for over an hour that night, the first phone call, um, which was the first of many, and first of many um, different forms of communication between us because we had a lot of emails um, backwards and forwards. Um, but, you know, once I heard the story and I heard the frustration in her voice and it wasn't anger, it was the sheer frustration that nobody seemed to be doing anything. Um, and it was a clear, an absolute clear um, case of um, that she was, missing and nobody was doing anything about it. And when I say she, obviously Sally's mum, Marion, she definitely fell into every category that fits as far as what is a missing person, the criteria set down, and nothing was being done about it at that stage. But if you recall, Sally's role in the event was suddenly cancelled at the very last minute due to New South Wales Police's conclusion at the time that Marion had chosen to go missing. Sally was never told why she was pulled from the lineup at the last minute. When I first had that conversation with Sally, I obviously needed to make sure our unit within the Australian Federal Police is an unsworn unit. There's no police officers, or there wasn't at that time, and I'm not sure if there is at, at the moment, but there was no police officers involved in my centre. So it didn't fall under our jurisdiction to investigate. I mean, we had no police powers whatsoever. We were an administrative team looking to raise the awareness and raise the profile of what it is to be a missing person in Australia and those affected and left behind. So I never, ever wanted to... Uh, blur the lines on that and I was very clear from Sally from the beginning that you know I was not a police officer I could not investigate the case I could not get involved in the investigation but outside of that there are criteria that a missing person or somebody that uh, a loved one sees is missing has to fit into a certain criteria to actually meet that of somebody that is missing and that's somebody that you know a loved one is unable to contact or can't find um, that uh, there's no signs of life or anything and that nobody has contact and fears for their safety and well-being. And Sally's mum fit into that every way I looked at it. So I had said to her earlier on the piece that her case would definitely be um, a great example of what it was to be missing and for us to try and raise the profile of this case. 
So I had suggested that they would consider um, being involved in Missing Persons Week that particular year. I then went on to contact my counterparts in New South Wales and the first initial reaction was that it looked okay, but they had to look into it and see what the status of the case was and whether there was anything that excluded them from being able to get involved in whatever. But they said initially it sounded all right. So I started to progress with driving the media campaign, uh, designing what that campaign looked like, getting photos of Marion, you know, talking to Sally, you know, taking a statement for her as far as media was concerned and things like that. And then my coordinator at the time was contacted by New South Wales Police saying that we weren't to promote the case and that we were to pull it from National Missing Persons Week and they would be in contact at a later date if they were able to tell us why. And given that we were unsworn police officers, that's something that we hear every day. If there's an ongoing investigation, you can't raise media awareness about the case because it's, you're obviously compromising the investigation. So we figured there must have been an ongoing investigation. Obviously, I had to then communicate that to Sally. Now, Sally had just had her little baby boy. She had been through the emotional upheaval that it is to discuss the case over and over again from day one. So, you know, I mean, that's a massive thing for a loved one that is left behind to have to dredge up all over again. Um, She had to consider her family, not just her involvement in a media campaign and having her face out there on social media and TV and things like that. So, you know, it's a long process to get somebody involved in that, a long vetting process to make sure the person's right for what you're looking at at the campaign and fits the story and the message and everything. So, poor old Sally, um, she'd been through the washer, you know, and she she was ready to come down. And I literally, the week before, had to call her and say, so I'm really sorry, but for reasons I can't explain, right now because it's something beyond my level, I've, I've got to pull you from the campaign. We're more than happy to still have you come down to the launch at, at the AFP's cost and everything like that and be involved but we can't have you in front of the media because New South Wales police have asked for your mum's case to be pulled from any media. And trying to explain it to somebody after being sure that is horrendous. And I, I've only ever had to do it once in my whole career with the AFP, and that was the time. She was distraught. She was absolutely crushed because she felt like I was her last lifeline, that the AFP was the last lifeline in hoping to raise awareness on her mum's case. I was devastated for her. Sadness. Fear. Well, strength. this year, 13 years after the false start, Sally Layden was again invited to be the face of Missing Persons Week in Australia. A few words that may on any given day describe my life. I, look, I, when I got the phone call to say that Sally was, or her mother's case was the highlighted profile for Missing Persons Week this year for 2020, I, nobody was more elated about it than me because it was well overdue by at least 10 years. 13 years. <laughs> 13 years. 2007 was your one, wasn't it? So 2020. It was. It was. Unfortunately for me, not being with the AFP and actually being away from Canberra myself, I would have done anything to have been there just to morally support her. But I was so glad that I knew it and I was able to send her a message of support. Um, our, our profiles, when I say our, so the Australian Federal Police campaign, um, reach a, a massive audience now with social media. And, um, you know, that uh, profile of Marion and the information around her case will go far and wide across the world as well as just domestically here in Australia. So 
thank goodness, although 13 years too late, it was great to still get that focus on the case. 8,442 days ago. And this time, she got to have her say on behalf of all of the families searching for missing loved ones. This is part of her speech. Of the 38,000 individuals that are reported missing to police in Australia each year, there are only 2,600 that remain who are regarded as long-term missing, meaning longer than three months. A smaller number falls into yet another category, which is that of plus 15 years missing without a trace. These cases make up more than 60% of the current long-term registered missing persons here in Australia. Many people tell me how they pray and hope that I will one day have closure. Closure to those of us in the missing world is not always our reality. Rather, it's best described as ambiguous loss. A loss that occurs without closure or clear understanding. Um, this is the kind of loss that leaves a person searching for answers and thus complicates the delays, the process of grieving and resulting in unresolved grief. Have you ever done a puzzle? It may have taken you days, even weeks to finish, but you get to the end and you're missing that last piece. Frustration kicks in, then anger before sadness, or the realization that all your hard work, you cannot complete your puzzle. You have failed. That is what my life feels like. You come up with a new theory, you spend hours, days, weeks, months, even years, putting the puzzle pieces together but more often than not, you're simply left with the missing piece of that puzzle. Countless hours mulling over every finer detail that could be the missing piece to what has been your biggest puzzle you've ever undertaken. Under tight COVID-19 restrictions at the beginning of August, Sally and her 19-year-old daughter Ella travelled south to Canberra for the event. Because it is quite daunting walking into a room and you've got ministers and, you know, commissioners of police and federal police and federal police everywhere in uniform. And um, But I will say that all the people down there were absolutely beautiful. I've thanked Trish Halligan from um, the head of the coordination down there for inviting us to come down and um, her staff, like, amazing, just such beautiful people. So it made us feel so welcome and I was really quite honoured to be asked to come down and be the face of long-term missing persons um, because for me, as much as my story is what I've been telling, as it's rolled on, I feel I can be a bit of a voice for other people and if we can push harder, we will get answers. And for those people who don't have a voice, I'm trying my hardest to you know, make that voice not just for me but for everybody who's in the same situation. Lauren O'Keefe um, has just put out a new podcast called The Missing and um, I would like to promote that because it's not so much about the story of the missing person but the family members and how they have had to cope with having a family member who's missing and what they've had to go through. And I'm not the only one. Um, you know, there are plenty of us out there who have had to do what I've, I'm doing currently, probably not as long as I've been doing it. Um, and, you know, I think at this moment I'm the only one who hasn't had um, SES looking, you know, and searches going out. I mean, for me to be told within less than a week that my mum was an occurrence only and no activity was done at all for another 10 years after that, that's very rare. But, um, you know, we're all in the same bucket and, you know, we're all trying to get through it the best way we can. At the event, the Australian Federal Police Commissioner, Rhys Kershaw, announced a $3.6 million program to DNA test human bones. 
in a bid to solve long-term missing persons cases. These are bones that have been found 15 or more years ago in various places all around Australia, but never identified. Bones which could possibly include Marion's. Oh, I was shaking at the AFP speech, probably because I had Peter Dutton standing right behind me. But um, I don't normally get nervous, but I was very nervous because I'm really passionate about that. I mean, when I first read about the bones that are sitting in the morgues that are unidentified, and there are hundreds of them, I was literally heartbroken. I I really was. And a journo asked me the question down there, you know, how would you feel if your mother was, well, do you think she could be one of those? And of course she could be, you know, this is why we're trying to find her. And it goes back to that comment of leaving no stone unturned. If, you know, at least if she was in there, we would have found her. So I was very happy with that announcement. $3.6 million is a lot of money to put into funding, um, to do the DNA testing on the bones that are older than 15 years. So I also learnt through that process that, you know, normal DNA testing isn't viable on anything that you have for for testing that's plus 15 years because of the age. I feel quite confident that they will be able to solve a lot of missing persons cases by testing those bones. And as sad as that is it's better that they're tested and we get the answers than them remain sitting there untested for the remainder of their their life. So, with bones being tested and a brief of evidence coming her way, Sally feels like she is finally making solid progress. She's even sent a letter to the New South Wales Police Minister seeking a $250,000 reward for information leading to the whereabouts of her mother. There's been no response yet, but we'll keep you posted. And the story of Marion's disappearance has created history too. It's the first time an Australian podcast investigation has led to the launch of a coronial inquest from scratch. There was no previous court case or inquest. Police didn't even consider a crime could have happened. While there are still many long days ahead, as Mark Levison reminded us, there is now also renewed hope. It's a complicated process, but at least... It is, it is, but it's, it's so worthwhile. And once it starts, it doesn't stop, right? Correct, that's it. The, the coroner has many, many powers, and in the end, we had the most wonderful, thorough, professional, and compassionate person you could have got. I feel be the same with us, but thank you so much for everything. Oh, look, it's my absolute pleasure, and again, to Sal and, and her team and, and all of you, a huge congratulations to a job well done. Thank you. Well, yeah, I guess it doesn't feel like the job's done yet, but this this is a very big milestone, like you said. I mean, it's a massive, massive one. I think they get up hurdles, knock them down, and move on, and you've done that again. So it's great. This is for everyone that's in the same boat. Um, certainly, you had the same circumstances as Sally did, where things just didn't seem to be happening, and it was through your sheer will and and patience and perseverance and persistence that got it done, wasn't it? It's simple. Never take no for an answer. And that's what we'll continue to do. When I first met you, if you'd asked me what my end goal was, it would have been to get to a coronial inquest and have the best of the best looking at it and um, researching it and investigating it properly. For as long as it takes. Someone out there knows something that's going to be able to finish every missing person's case 
it doesn't matter how much time goes by or, or what happens, someone out there somewhere knows the key piece of information that's missing to solve each of these cases. Until next time. If you knew Marion or have any information about her or her whereabouts, we'd love to hear from you. Our website is 7news.com.au forward slash news forward slash the lady vanishes. And you can also message us here or anonymously at theladyvanishes.org. If you like what you're hearing, don't forget to subscribe. Please rate and review our series. It helps new listeners to find us. Presenter and executive producer, Alison Sandy. Presenter and investigative journalist, Brian Seymour. Producer and writer, Sally Eels. Sound design, Mark Wright. Transcripts, Charlie Daly Watkins and Alice Sinclair. Graphics, Jason Blandford. This is a 7 News production.